Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks on today's show, we are honored and privileged to have back with us for the fourth time, well, third and a half time, as I joked with him earlier, <laughs> Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Ron, how are you doing this week? I'm great, Ed. I'm so excited. It's not every day I get to talk to my rabbi. So yes. I'm really looking forward to this. I get to listen thank to you, him every thank week. Thank you, Ron, but... and, and thank you, Ed. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm deeply conscious of the honor of being back uh, for the third and a half time. <laughs> third and a half time. <laughs> well, and we do have Father Sirico lined up for a couple of weeks from now, but you beat him back. You're ahead of him now, technically. <laughs> 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 Well, uh, just quick bio, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, known at, worldwide as America's Rabbi, is a noted rabbinical scholar, a best-selling author and host of Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast. He reveals how the world really works and reminds us that the more things change, the more we need to depend on upon those things that never change. So welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thank you so much, Ed. Great to be back. And I've been looking forward to this for several weeks now. Oh, so good. Well, first uh, question, how are you and your family riding out with the COVID situation? Oh, we feel considerably more threatened by governmental overreach and panic than we do by the virus. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're well then. That's, that's, that's the most important thing. Um, I just, a late report here, I'm in Texas, and you know it's got to be somewhat serious because the high school football team canceled its game tonight for <laughs> <laughs> because two of the kids got COVID, so we shall see. Anyway, um, you know, under under this notion of uh, of change and relying on ancient wisdom, uh, back when we first interviewed you, we talked about your your ten commandments of wealth creation, and number seven is learn to foretell the future. Uh, and in that in your book, you mentioned that the best known Jewish aphorism is whatever has been, there will be, and whatever is done, that what will be done, there is nothing new under the sun. So. You studied economics. What's not new under the sun with this COVID-19? Because, boy, it feels sure feels new to us. Uh, well, again, the um, I mean, obviously, uh, from an epidemiological point of view, it's it's not new. Um, thank God it's considerably less virulent than uh, the flu epidemic of 1918. Um, it's, uh, it's not even close to that. And the other part of it that's not new is how easy it is to stampede a population when you cite public health. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sensitive to this because from the Middle Ages all the way into the middle of the 20th century, uh, one of the ways in which Jews were... Um, subjected to uh, extremely severe uh, um, 
oppression um, was not intellectually but emotionally. People were told that Jews poisoned wells, public health. People were told that Jews conveyed a plague. And all the way into the 20th century, Joseph Goebbels uh, was particularly adept at uh, persuading the population that, that Jews um, communicated disease. The great thing, from the point of view of a tyrannical regime, is that um, the public health card is fantastic. From the perspective of the, um, the, the power-reaching politician or the bureaucrat intoxicated with the sensual thrill of inflicting authority and, um, and power, uh, public health is great. There's literally nothing you cannot regulate, legislate, rule, uh, or obliterate by citing public health. Uh, it's anything. I mean, you know, stop, stop bathing. Uh, water has parasites in it. It's a public health issue. Cut it out. No more mountain climbing for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, there is nothing I could not figure out a way to ban or prohibit on the basis of public health. And people will panic. Um, I, was, I was on a freeway today, for heaven's sake, I was on the New Jersey Turnpike. And I can't tell you, I mean, there were people driving alone in their cars at 65 miles an hour, wearing masks that looked like they were about to enter uh, the twilight zone's most hideous plague. Uh, it, 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 you can panic people very, very easily. And it's nothing and I, new, it, not new at all. Yeah, I, and I, as you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of reports that I've, I've read this week about, uh, you know, as, as, as challenging as it has been for us, at least we do have Amazon. Uh, you know, I think they're about like some, some countries in sub-Saharan Africa and other places that do have despot, despots who are in charge, who are, I guess, uh, uh, really using this as a way to put a lot of people down. No, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, um, I, I have no doubt whatsoever. You know, I, I'll tell you something. Going back um, a long time, but most recently, um, Stalin's years in the uh, Soviet Union, you remember that time after time and time again, um, Stalin would announce proudly the advent of a new five-year economic plan. And when it invariably failed, um, the answer was always external circumstances. And again, this is nothing new under the sun. Do you know why uh, forest fires are burning uncontrolled in California? Right? In the 1950s, in the 1960s, all the way into the 70s, a big forest fire was 15,000 acres. Big. And now they've routinely got fires over 100,000 acres. Now, we are expected to believe that this has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the uh, environmental lobby's um, fanatical restrictions on tampering with Mother Nature. And so the kind of fire breaks and controlled burns that were a part of California forest management going to back 
to the days of the indigenous Indians and all the way through up into the 60s and into the early 70s, roads were built through the forest that served as fire breaks and also access uh, paths for heavy machinery to be brought in. And so it's not that they didn't have fires ignited. They had the same number of fires ignited as now. It's just that they never burned as much because they were able to get to them and put them out. And because controlled burning had eliminated the inflammable underbrush, uh, they were they were manageable. So now we pull the Stalin card again. The reason they're Californian forest fires is not because we've hopelessly mismanaged public lands. No, it's because of climate change. It's just like Stalin. It's the weather. And that's what Stalin would say. The famines came, you know why? Not because he had executed and massacred nearly 5 million kulaks who were the small business people who carried the the food from the farms and from the fields into the towns and cities and to the marketplaces. No, people were starving in the cities because of weather-caused famine. And nobody paid any attention to the fact that the fields were ripe with rotting food that nobody had bothered to bring into the town. So this is a routine business. Blame some kind of natural phenomenon for the failures to deliver on your promises. This is politics 101. This is, I mean, bureaucrats learn learn this in their baby cradles. It's very, very basic. And so in that sense, uh, Corona has been extremely useful because it is um, obscuring a multitude of bureaucratic and political sins. So much is being blamed. I almost feel sorry for the coronavirus's shoulders. It's being asked to shoulder a burden for which it was never designed in the first place. <laughs> well, and, and and to that end, and just want to get as a studier, someone who studied economics as well. I mean, I, I even if we snapped our fingers and everything went back to what it what it was, the the Great Suppression, as Gene Epstein calls it, I think ha, has really caused damage that is going to be with us for a number of years. Hence, down down the line, uh, that that's one of my fears is that we're we're only beginning to see the ramifications of this long term, and that's even if everything got better almost immediately. Um, Ed, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic than you. And Good. Talk and, me out of it. <laughs> well, and, and I do so with, with some trepidation because I know your economic background is, is superior to mine. And so I, I, uh, I, I tread cautiously. But uh, I, I think that the two kinds of predictions that throughout history have been notoriously fallible Uh, have been demographic and economic. And uh, it's it's my uh, sense and hope, obviously, that when when freedom arrives, if the creative powers of a nation like America uh, that is accustomed to considerably greater degrees of freedom than uh, are, are common in Europe, for instance, that when these creative powers are unleashed and people are allowed to uh, go back and, and do what they want to do, uh, I, I do have a sense, and, and I think it's something we, we have seen before as well, 
that dire political predictions about this is going to take years and years to recover from turns out not to be the case. We you know, human beings are very resilient, and uh, when we when we finally realize that we've been unshackled and we're we're free to create and we're free to connect and communicate and collaborate. When, when all those things are, are let loose, I, I do think we're going to be shocked at just how quickly uh, the economy will recover. Well, that, I, I hope that that's, uh, found, that happens. And as the saying goes, from your mouth to God's ears. So let's, let, let, let's hope that that's the case. Well, we're already up against our first break. This is amazing how quickly this goes by. want to remind everyone that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, want to remind you also that our Patreon show, which is available on patreon.com slash TSOE, is now sponsored by 90 Minds. And we're thrilled to have them on as a sponsor you can get to them at 90minds.com where more minds are better than one but right now a word from our sponsors become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america sage provides accountants with compliance reporting and analytic solutions to do more for their clients These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with america's rabbi and my rabbi even though i'm not jewish rabbi but like you say that even- title is worth much <laughs> more to me than the former i'd much rather be yours than america's you all you are i i listen to you religiously every week your show is great and we'll definitely link to it in show notes uh couldn't go couldn't go a week without it um as you know rabbi this program we called the soul of enterprise because we wanted to talk about more than just the material aspect of business as you taught me as father sirico taught me george gilder you guys talk about the spiritual side 
and you have a you have lots of fantastic explanations of the difference between physical and spiritual. I love, I use your violin example all the time, but I love maybe even more because of the visual it paints your pet chimpanzee. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, so, uh, I, I think that the, uh, the biggest, almost a Titanic, cultural conflict that is the chief characteristic of our times um, is a struggle between a materialistic worldview, which not coincidentally, by the way, is also a Marxist worldview. You know, they speak of the, the, the Marxist dialectic and, and it is fundamentally materialistic in nature. Uh, and so we're, we're living through a fascinating time where the cultural conflict, the literally a canyon uh, that cuts through the culture, uh, is between a worldview that is mechanistic and materialistic, and uh, on the other hand, a worldview that uh, acknowledges a, uh, a role for a god and a spiritual perspective. Now, all of that sounds vaguely theological and uh, not terribly interesting. But when it boils down to its real world essentials, what it boils down to is a very simple basic question, which is, are the three of us nothing more than a cunning arrangement of common chemicals that you can buy for about $9 on Amazon? Um, or alternatively, are we a marvelous, mystical, majestic creature, impenetrable, touched by the finger of God? Are we a, absolutely, are we a unique species on the planet, or are we just another animal on the uh, extended continuum um, and uh, on, on, the, um, uh, on the spectrum from... Uh, amoeba and viruses all the way up to uh, plumbers and proctologists. Somewhere along there, right, what are we? And that is really the clash right now. Um, it's, it's a clash that didn't begin with Darwin. It began a, a lot later than that. But the, the clash is a very, very real one. And, and here is why. If we are, in fact nothing but animals, if that is the correct worldview, and that we are just the inevitable consequence of a cold, dark, unfeeling universe that coughed up a particular arrangement of elements that materialized into this world, this planet, and on it, through the, uh, uh, through the workings of random selection, and, uh, and the application of extensive periods of, of galactic time uh, from basic uh, organic compounds, springs, um, bookkeepers, and ballerinas. So we got to ask ourselves, the danger of that worldview is that like animals, we don't have choice. And if we don't have choice, then anything and everything we do is something that happened regardless of my participation. I am a passive 
particle floating in the emptiness of time on which external forces act. And not only can't you have a society like that, you, you can't even have a judicial system. Because in the final analysis, and by the way, the pressure from the culture is heavily in this direction. That is why my collection of clippings, I have literally hundreds of articles and cover stories talking about how adultery is hardwired. Well, that's good to know, I got to tell you, because it's been pretty darn hard to resist a few temptations in the last few years. But now I don't have to, because it isn't my fault. That's really important. Um, gambling away the rent money. Hey, don't criticize me for a character defect or for a personality weakness. No. You've got to recognize that I, I have a sickness. I need treatment. I need help. And this is how the culture deals with it. When somebody behaves abomin abominably to women, um, what he does is he says, I am accepting responsibility and I'm going off to a treatment facility, which happens to be a luxury resort in Arizona, where he's out of the public eye. And wow, he's being cured because all of this is organic. There's nothing spiritual about it. You didn't choose to do anything wrong. You have problems. You, you obese? Don't think for a moment this has anything to do with eating badly and not exercising. No, it's because you were predestined to be that way. And the culture, well, obviously this means you can't uh, prosecute or punish any criminal. And of course, that's the direction in which we've been headed as a, as a failing society. So uh, that is one angle. And I'm coming back to my gorilla. Uh, the, the other viewpoint is that we are glorious creatures touched by the finger of God, unique and different from every other species, which, by the way, is the biblical view. One only has to look at the first two chapters of Genesis. But this is what the clash is all about today. Um, much of modern psychiatry has been uh, geared towards rejecting basically the Freudian view rather than the Jungian view, uh, rejecting the notion of the human being as a spiritual entity and turning us into, not, into, into a, a physical inevitability in which nothing can't be cured with the right medication. That's the viewpoint. Nothing you do, nothing, no sin you commit, no vice in which you indulge is ever due to your own bad character. Uh, everything is external. And so that distinction is a very important one because for me, I am very fond of my pet chimpanzee. Sometimes he even furrows his brow and looks as if he's deep in thought, but I actually know better. There are other times where he seems to have a smile on his face, but I know that I'm projecting because being able to consciously think is uniquely to human, is unique to human beings. Being able to, to laugh is unique to human beings. And no matter what grunting noises he makes, and no matter how fondly I imagine that he's actually uh, reciting Ozymandias, uh, the, the reality is I know perfectly well he's not talking. And so one of the convenient ways I have for um, detecting whether an activity in which I engage is spiritual or physical is I let my pet gorilla watch. And uh, the, the chimp 
either understands it or he doesn't. And so, you know, when I uh, have dinner, he gets that. Uh, when I take a little nap, he gets that as well. There's no question about it. He's with me. When I pick up the newspaper and read it, he's baffled. When I pray, he's completely baffled. He, he doesn't get it at all. And so, on the other hand, uh, when, I, um, when I engage in a, in a commercial transaction, I take him with me to the store, and I hand over some little things in my hand, pieces of paper, discs of metal. He doesn't get that at all. And then I carry out of the store a huge package of a dozen prime rib steaks. He doesn't get what happened. He simply doesn't understand commercial transactions. He can't because commercial transactions are fundamentally spiritual in nature. I, I think that's just such a great distinction. And so it is with, with everything else. I can, I can measure every one of my activities. And now not everything is, is clear cut. It's not necessarily completely binary um, because uh, when a husband and wife share private moments of intimacy, although we might let the chimpanzee in just for scientific reasons, um, he doesn't actually get what's going on fully there. He doesn't fully get that. Um, he gets the physical dimensions of it, and he gets that there's an instinctive urge to acquire pleasure. But what he can't begin to understand is that with human beings uniquely, there's an even more powerful compulsion to impart pleasure to the other person. That part he doesn't get. I love it. I love it. Rabbi, this is totally unfair. We've only got about a minute and a half, but you always say the advice that you get from every commencement speech, do what you love, is bad advice. Why do you say that? Um, because it's an incredibly selfish thing. It's the same reason I say don't retire. Um, you know, uh, Jerry's been taking care of my taxes for 18 years now. Every April the 14th, I walk into his office with my pile of papers and he magically makes everything happen or not happen as it, as it tra transpires. And then one day I walk in on April the 14th and uh, he's dressed for golf and uh, he's not interested. I, What's the matter with you? He says, I'm retired. Didn't you hear? I retired a month ago. I said, what does retire mean? He says, well, I'm, I'm going off to play golf. I said, how, how are you going to eat? How are you going to pay for your golf? He said, I've made enough money. I said, you selfish son of unmarried parents, how dare you? How dare you? All these years I thought you cared about me, but you don't. All you cared about was me making enough so you can take your ball and go home. Right. No, right. That's, that is the same, the, the same idea. Um, we, we do this to serve other people. Doing what you love is incredibly selfish. The right. surest way not to get a job with me is to answer the question when I say, so what is it you'd really like to be doing? If you answer that, you've just signed your death warrant. You're out. I don't want to know what you want to do. I want to know how passionate you are about solving my problems. Right, right. Serve others and then you'll learn to love it. I, I, I love that advice. Yes. Well, Rabbi, unfortunately, we're up against the next break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send an email to asktsoe 
at bearsage.com. We will post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com where you can learn more about Rabbi Daniel Lappin's work and his website, youneedarabbi.com, which I love. Uh, and now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with our Rabbi Rabbi Daniel Lappin here on The Soul of Enterprise. And Rabbi, I wanted to ask you, one of the things I've heard you say over and over again is that if there's not a Hebrew word for it, there's there's no reason for it. However, my guess is there's not a Hebrew word for innovation, but that doesn't mean that the Bible can't tell us an awful lot about innovation. So what, what, what does the Hebrew Bible have to say about innovation? Well, first of all, um, the word for innovation occurs, exists, appears quite it frequently does. as a matter of fact. Huh. Uh, and and it, it really is at the at the heart of everything. Um, so, what it, it has a few things to say, and and I just want to clarify that when I teach ancient Jewish wisdom from the Bible, um, it's important that I issue the caveat that I'm not operating with uh, throwing out a verse here or a verse there. Um, or issuing a slogan here or there, because uh, as I as I like pointing out, uh, I mean slogans are, are are like drugs for the lazy mind, and um, and so what we're talking about is a comprehensive worldview, uh, an, an entire matrix of reality that is drawn from the vast tapestry of the Hebrew Scriptures in their entirety. So um, th- that being the case. Uh, one of the things that uh, is is emphasized is constant change. The idea that uh, that tomorrow 
will not be the same as today. And yes, there will be certain basic principles. To the end of time, human beings are going to need to sleep typically for six to eight hours every 24 hours. That is true a thousand years ago. It's true in the time of Abraham, and it'll be true in the times of our descendants. That's a, that is a basic. Uh, my great-grandfather might have slept on a vermin-ridden straw mattress, and I sleep on a Sealy Posturepedic. It's a very different experience. But spiritually, it's exactly the same thing. We both withdraw from creative endeavor for eight hours every 24. Sometimes a lot less than eight, but that's basically the picture. And so that is an unchangeable aspect of the human experience on planet Earth. Um, Male-female relationships. You know, to, there's, uh, the, there's, there's fashion, there's clothing that changes. There's all kinds of uh, things that do change. But the basic idea that masculinity and femininity are attracted towards one another, that doesn't change at all. And so one of the, uh, the principles is that only by innovation can you survive. And that's a very important why. Well, because it goes back uh, to the beginning of Genesis, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it. Now, the, uh, the meaning of that is not some fanciful mythical account of a garden tucked into the desert somewhere near Baghdad. Um, it's that every one of us has the potential and even the latent desire to build our own Garden of Eden. And each of us are placed in a potentially creative environment for the purpose of working. And so work is not something that we have to do in order to survive. Work is part of what gives our survival meaning. As a matter of fact, when people say money doesn't bring you happiness, um, they probably are people who haven't ever had a shortage of it because there's no doubt that a shortage of money does make you unhappy. But their argument is, well, yeah, but after you reach a certain point of financial adequacy, uh, money doesn't bring you happiness. Not true. Winning money or getting money doesn't bring you happiness. Earning money produces enormous happiness. It's one of the reasons that lottery winners so seldom improve their lives in the wake of the lottery win. But people who work derive a, a deep pleasure from the actual work and from what, uh, from what it is they're doing. Uh, Hebrew and English are two of the languages that distinguish between winning and earning. In most of the, uh, the Latin languages, uh, um, Italian, French, Spanish, uh, there is no distinction. Getting money. And this probably has a little to do with why the Industrial Revolution really kicked off in England and why it is that English colonies, whether it, was, whether it was South Africa or Canada or New Zealand or Australia or even North American, uh, did far, far better than French colonies, than Italian colonies, than Portuguese colonies. Uh, there was something very special. And one of the special aspects of it is that the language reflects reality 
uh, more accurately along with Hebrew. Winning is not the same as earning. Inheriting is not the same as earning, although it's not quite as bad as winning. And so this, this process of uh, working is, uh, is crucial, and work means always coping with a new set of circumstances, uh, down to the very basic. It's, it's now uh, fall, and we're going to have winter. That means I better start making uh, um, sweaters and, and raincoats instead of bathing suits. I mean, I've got to adapt to the change. And one of the best examples of that is um, Jacob's son. And I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm watching the, the clock, obviously, and, and I, I know how tricky it is to run a, a professional show <laughs> like you guys do. But um, uh, it, it's very, very interesting that at the end of Genesis, uh, an entire chapter, more than 30 verses, goes with Jacob blessing his sons. And it says, you know, Reuben, this, this 12 son. If it was me writing the book, I'd have said, hey, you know, boys, <laughs> by and large, over the last 40 years, you've all been a gigantic pain in the neck. Nonetheless, God bless you all. I'm off. I'm out of here. I'm gone. That's how I would have. One verse. I could have saved a lot of ink. But the reason that scripture does it that way is because Jacob was setting up a system of mutual independency. The only way to make sure that I will love a whole lot of people, including Ed, Alan, Edmund, Alan Edmonds, who makes my shoes. I, I, I look at them, their share price every little while to make sure they're doing well because specialization is what makes us interdependent. Specialization is what makes us love one another. I'd hate it if the companies that I depend on go out of business. And so I love other people's work because they supply the things I need and I supply things they need. And one of the sons, Zebulun, who is the guy focused on, uh, on business and finance, which is why both with Jacob and later on at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses blesses the tribes, Zebulun clearly is the financial guy. And, um, and in his blessing explicitly are the words, break down boundaries, break into new areas. And that is one of the chief of about a dozen different locations where innovation is identified as absolutely essential. Yeah, really neat stuff. Uh, I, what was uh, the other thing I wanted to, to quick ask you about, and we've got about four minutes left, is um, the renewal of the cities as you see them. One of the things that we've heard recently is that you know New York is going to die; it's all all going to happen. But you have a, I thought, a very interesting blog post where you say, yes, all all cities do have a tendency to go through a, trauma, a time of trial, but oftentimes they're they they're rebound they, and they often outlast. Uh, even governments themselves. That's right. And, and thank you for reminding me of it because it fascinates me that the Roman Empire has been gone <laughs> for nearly 2,000 years. But who doesn't want to visit Rome at least once in a lifetime? Um, the French Empire, I mean, that's an oxymoron if you ever heard one, but they once used to be one, you know, but it's gone but we still like visiting Paris. And so it's interesting. And, and where, where this is rooted um, is, is um, at the, again, early in Genesis, Ed, um, what happens is that Cain uh, murders his brother Abel. And 
um, as a form of atonement, as a form of assuring God that he gets it, he knows what he did wrong, he, he does the most extraordinary thing. He builds a city, and he names the city after his newborn son. And what's so extraordinary about this is that with the best will in the world, we can't count up more than about seven or eight or nine people on the planet at that point, according to the, the story. And, you know, typically you don't really need a city for 10 people. <laughs> and so, um, by the way, Jane Jacobs, I don't know if that name rings a bell. She was yeah. a, a wonderful urban planet. Yep. She's a Canadian woman, a very iconoclastic, and, um, and she didn't have any formal training in the field. But uh, in one of her books, she makes this point. She doesn't know the Bible connection. But what she says is 100% right. She says, all the archaeologists who insist that cities are the result of farms and urban de rural development and agricultural development have all got it wrong. The city is what makes everything else work. Cities come before the farms, not the other way around. And, and that's huge. It's a massive insight. And so when we, when we start looking at whether New York will ever make it back, I agree with you. You know, don't count New York out too quickly. Uh, cities don't die that easily or that quickly. Yeah, and it's I, I like the the tie into the innovation piece too. It's just just great. Well, well, we're against our, our last break here. Want to remind you, you can talk to Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, is the Soul of Enterprise, where we put up show notes, including our conversations with Rabbi Lappin as well as Father Sirico, who's coming up. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise 
Welcome back, everybody. We're here with my rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And Rabbi, you say in, I think it's Business Secrets uh, of the from the Bible, uh, which is a fantastic book, and we will post all your books on our show notes, that ancient Israel prohibited the king from counting the people because it implies that all people are identical. So I have kind of two questions. Do you oppose the census? <laughs> and, and what is the threat from government counting? Yeah. Um, firstly, no, of course, I, I don't oppose the census at all. Um, I oppose distortions and, uh, and, um, and um, deliberate errors that are introduced to the census, but that's, that's something else. Um, no, he, here's what's wrong with it. Look, um, we are here, the three of us, probably among the most handsome and virile men in North America, right? We're, 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 we're extraordinary people. And, and really, the, the tragedy is that there's only three of us. What we should do, if we possibly could, is clone Ed, clone me, and clone Ron. And that way, at least there's six of us. We'll spread the wealth. And if indeed we did that, how, how stimulating would it be uh, for me to sit down with my clone? Well, I'd sit down with him, and the first thing I'd say is, by the way, I had a really, really enjoyable interview. with." He said, I know, I was there. Okay. Um, you know, somebody told me a really funny joke about the president. He says, I know, I know it. Pretty soon I realize that my clone is about the least interesting human being on the planet. My chimpanzee is more fun. And what's more, if I sit down to brainstorm with me, it's a waste of time, a total waste of time. And so... Um, our uniqueness becomes an, an important part of understanding who we are. And that's, in essence, uh, what, the, uh, what the biblical worldview means when it says we're created in God's image. Um, it means that each and every one of us is unique. Now, here's the interesting thing. And um, uh, it, it's quite fascinating because everyone knows that identical twins have the same ovum. It's, it's a split zygote. And so these two twins, they're either both boys or both girls because they're identical. They have exactly the same DNA. And so one of the most baffling questions is when I enjoy asking people, so since they have the identical DNA, do you suppose they uh, emerge into the world with the same fingerprints as one another, or does each have a unique fingerprint? Now you're stuck. Because if you say that they have different fingerprints, you have absolutely no way to explain that because there is no independent genetic data that impacts one of them over the other. So you have to say the same fingerprints. But if that were true, then there would be a thousand wonderful detective stories. Very good. I love they actually, that. They have separate fingerprints. Now, uh, some people, you know, you know, science doesn't lie, but many scientists do, just the way the Bible doesn't lie, but many clergymen do. Um, the, the, the thing here is that um, 
Um, many people say, oh, well, it's easy to explain. There's something called epigenetics. No, it's not easy to explain. Epigenetics doesn't explain it. E epigenetics is a construct. Nobody knows if it exists or not. But if we could say that it existed, perhaps it could explain. Basically, it's talking about which genes get turned on and off under which circumstances. Bottom line is nobody can explain why two identical twins have separate fingerprints. The answer is that we shouldn't call it a fingerprint. We should call it a soul print because you might be able to clone my body. Not that there'd be any cheers about that, but one that, what you cannot do is clone my soul because that is unique. And, uh, and that's why our mark of uniqueness is on our face and on our fingers. And, um, and all of commercial enterprise, every single financial transaction hinges on a simple reality, and that is that no two human beings are identical. The reason that no dog trades a bone with another dog, no dog ever says, hey, tell you what, let me figure out with you the net present value of tomorrow's bone. I'll exchange you a bone in exchange. They, they don't do that because both dogs are identical. They have exactly the same yearnings for the same bones. But every single person is different. That's why eBay works. You want something that I don't want. So let's swap. I have $5, which I don't want nearly as much as I want a pair of sneakers with lights in the heel that flash. And so we, we trade. Trading is absolutely dependent on the fact that each and every one of us is unique. And uh, this, by the way, is why it is that uh, in Hebrew, there is no ordinal form. In the Lord's language, there's no ordinal form for one. There is for three and four and five, right? Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. We're accustomed to that. In English, we say first, second. But in Hebrew, there is no first. And that's why in the days of creation, going through the first six days of creation in the first chapter of Genesis, it says second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, but it doesn't say first day. It says one day or day one because there is no ordinal form for one. You know why? Because one stands for God. In a monotheistic worldview, one is synonymous with God. And so an ordinal suggests there's others coming along behind it. This is the third orange. Well, that's only because there were two that came before, and there'll probably be a few more coming on afterwards. When you, when you use that form, but you can't use that form for God because there is only one. That's why we call it monotheism. And so um, naturally, the, the, the idea then is that uh, we have to be very careful about counting people because the subtle unspoken implication is that we're viewing them as all interchangeable and identical, which is a huge insult. I kind of like you always say bricks and is it rocks or um, bricks or stones? That's stones. Right. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. 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 Bricks are okay. identical stones are not. And that's why, uh, and that's why, I mean, uh, socialism likes building houses, housing for people that everything looks the same. And don't you dare paint the front door a different color. Right. You know, you also say another thing in business secrets from the Bible that Jewish people understood specialization for millennial before yeah. Adam Smith. Can you give an example? Sure. Um, well, let me, let me start off with the moral implications of, um, uh, of specialization. If I take care of everything I need, if I make my own shoes and I, I make my own cheese and I grow my own wheat and make my own bread, I take care of everything me and my family needs, 
at that point, I'm working 24-7 and I'm a subsistence peasant and I have a very rotten life. What is more, I hate everyone else because they're using up my air and my water. Let me paint a picture. Uh, after Adam Smith, late 18th century, uh, we come into the 19th century, and there's a guy called Samuel Colt who's making firearms in Connecticut. And let's visit his workshop as it appeared before he read Adam Smith. Uh, we walk in there, and uh, he's got six people sitting around the table. And uh, each one goes and gets a, a piece of uh, steel, and they drill a hole through the, the length of it, and they call that a barrel. And then they uh, shape a rotating chamber. And then, uh, you know, if they get finished that day or the next day, they finally assemble all the pieces. And each man produces a revolver, signs his name on the bottom. Samuel Colt comes around with a basket, picks up all the revolvers, and pays each man according to the number of revolvers he's produced, called piecework. And, um, and what happens is um, one of the guys doesn't show up for work. Well, how do the others react? They say, oh, great, more beer and more sandwiches for us. We don't care. But one day Samuel Colt comes and says, hey, guys, we're going to do this a little differently. Uh, hey, Adam, you know what you're going to do? You're going to make barrels. And uh, Barry, you're going to carve handles. And Charlie, your job is going to be to shape the rotating chamber. And David, you're making the trigger. And Eric, you're assembling everything together. And uh, Fred, you're going to do whatever. You're going to paint them or vinyl, whatever it is. Now what happens when one guy doesn't show up? Everyone else arrives at work. And where's David? He's not there. So we all run over to David's farm. David, David, where are you? Because we can't produce revolvers without him. And David says, you know, my kid's sick, so I had to help out and I, I had to take care of a few things. I'm not finished uh, chores at home. I can't leave my wife. They say, quickly, tell us what to do. We'll help you. We'll get it done. We've got to get to work. Now, which way does God prefer? People who care about their fellow workers or people who regard their fellow workers as, at best, a nuisance? That's what that. specialization does. It does. And that's, it why, that's why Father Jacob made sure that all his children were dependent on one another through the magic of specialization. And uh, it shouldn't surprise us that a good and loving God should reward us for following his desires with the incredible benefit and blessing of financial abundance. Because guess what? If you do it God's way by specialization, you're going to make much more money with much less effort. You're going to eat better and live better. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's the beauty of specialization. And yes, of Love course, it. it predates Adam Smith, but not to take anything away from that great Scottish economist. Sure. Well, Rabbi, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming back on for the fourth time. We've got to have you back a lot sooner than every couple of years or so. <laughs> and and, and uh, hold on with us until we sign off. But Ed, of what's, on, Thank you what's, for on, me. Uh, what's on store for next week? Next week, Ron, we have Gary Hamill, the author of Humanocracy. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage. 
transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 